Hello, everyone. This is another episode of Candid Crack um, by QLab. We have uh, two speakers. Uh, one is the guest speaker, and that's uh, Brian. How are you, Brian? I'm very well, Oscar. Good to see you both. Excellent. So, Brian, let, uh, let me explain me first before we continue um, who Brian is. <laughs> Sure, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so um, my name is Brian Henderson. I've been uh, working in the legal sector for about 30 years. Um, first of all, as a lawyer and then in a series of management roles. Um, and after 30 years, I had a burnout experience and decided to leave the legal profession um, and really turn my attention to wellness as a hot topic. Um, and one of which I had uh, direct experience as a result of my burnout. Um, so that's what I'm currently working on. Beyond that, I have two kids who both live in the UK. I live in Hong Kong with my wife and our little dog. Um, and originally I was born in Belfast and brought up in the chaos of the 1970s in Belfast. So still uh, processing the traumas from those days as well. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Brian. So what about this one? Of course, that's leading to the second question, right? So explain to me a little bit more of what you actually do. Yeah, so my company's called Whole Business Wellness. So uh, what I experienced was that uh, my company had a lot of good tone from the top around wellness. Um, and quite a few lunch and learns. They had an EAP, we had yoga, we had meditation classes. Um, but I felt... Uh, still quite misunderstood and unsupported. Um, <clears throat> so somehow all of those good intentions didn't really convert into the outcomes that probably were intended. Uh, so I got to thinking about that and I, and I realized that my experience was almost certainly not unique and that most companies are struggling with this. <clears throat> and I think the research shows that something like only 15% of people feel like whatever their employer offers in the space is actually a helpful and, and be used by them. So the uptake is, is small um, and even those who take it up don't always find it that helpful. Um, so I got to thinking about why is that? <clears throat> and uh, it occurred to me there's probably a few reasons, but one is that uh, companies just don't really have a lot of concrete data about wellness. Um, it's very hard to ma manage something if you're not really able to measure it other than anecdotally and subjectively. So what we're trying to do in our business is to generate a level of awareness, both at the individual level, because it all starts there. We're all responsible for our own wellness up to a certain point, um, but also to try and create awareness at a team level and an organizational level. So teams and organizations can actually manage wellness in a more strategic way as part of the way they run the business. So making decisions about how fast to roll out new initiatives or how much resources to provide, uh, and so on. So having a, a measure by which they can check in with their <laughs> team's wellness and then adjust course um, to make sure that people are well enough to actually deliver the business outcomes that, that are sought. Um, so that's what we do. So it's a combination of the self-awareness at the individual level will be around things like yoga and meditation. Um, <clears throat> at a team level, we help teams understand their shared resilience and give them a language and a framework to talk about their resilience. Um, and help them to plan actions that will make them all more resilient as a group. Um, and then having got some sort of insights and some data from those interventions, we then look to bring in some design thinking approach and techniques uh, to help with the leadership um, to really unpack what is the human experience um, in their organization, because 
none of us ever tell the boss what we're really experiencing and therefore the bosses again don't have the information they need to uh, be able to manage it effectively <clears throat> so trying to make sure the bosses get those insights um, and are able to think about all of these systemic issues that go into wellness in a corporate environment so that they can manage them much more intentionally and hopefully more effectively so that's a long description but that's basically what we do is building wellness capability uh, in organizations you, you've given us a lot to, to deep dive into just in in that section brian so that, so the first thing i think is, is worth asking a, a secondary question about is you, you talked about the tone from the top and, 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 and the intention to, to, to do well, wellness and well-being work. Uh, and, and yet there was a gap between that intention and your experience. Well, why is that the case? Mm. Well, I think uh, there's really multiple reasons. I think one is that there is still a huge amount of stigma around mental health issues. So even if you feel like you're struggling, you probably don't feel like you want to tell that to your boss and you definitely don't want to tell it to HR. Um, so that's one issue. I think another one is just a lack of understanding. So in my own personal experience, you know, I went to one of those lunch and learns and I, it was kind of like I sat there with my bingo card ticking all the symptoms and ending up with a full house. And then I just kind of went back to my desk and got on with life and just tried to continue coping. I didn't think it could be that bad <clears throat> and I didn't really understand how you know how serious it could become so I think that's you know at an individual level there's a lack of understanding and I think at a management and leadership level there's a similar lack of understanding of you know what are these symptoms what happens to people how do we talk to them in a way that they feel supported as opposed to threatened um, so yeah so I think there's there's just a couple of immediate kind of reasons um, but as well as that sort of difficult to measure a return on investment, difficult to know what if interventions are going to be effective, which are not, because these things are all very subjective. So my, my burnout experience was not entirely work-related. I had a whole number of things going on in my private life as well. Um, you know, so there's, you, you always have to personalize the support that you provide to any individual to their circumstances. And that's, you know, if you're running a company with thousands of people, that's difficult to achieve. That, that moment where you, you got the full bingo card and then you just went back to your desk. And can, can you sort of explain what, what was actually going on in your head as, as, as you did that? Because I mean, in, in many respects, I mean, you're, you're, I mean, I've known you now for quite a while and, and it's all, that's almost sort of a, a toxic masculine moment is I'm, is I'm, unwilling, to, I'm unwilling to explore any, any weakness and sensitivities I have. And, and you're one of the people I would least describe as having any, any toxic masculinity in them that you're open <laughs> willing to. So, so what, and I, know, I recognize it's quite a complex question, but, but what was going on there? Um, mm -hmm. That walk between a lunch and learn where you went, oh my God, and yeah. right, I'm just gonna go back to work again. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think part of it was it was just all relatively new information, at least in the way it was conveyed to me at that, at that discussion. So quite a lot to take in. Um, I think there was a little bit of, well, I seem to be doing okay. It doesn't seem to be a problem. You know, I'm kind of getting through each day. I remember walking back from that lunch with another colleague and she was saying, yeah, you know, I recognize quite a few of those symptoms as well. And I thought, well, well, there you go. You see, it's just normal. Everybody experiences these things. So <clears throat> can't, you know, mustn't be a problem. Uh, so I think, yeah, it was more the implications. Um, 
an understanding of the fact that if you just keep going with those symptoms after a certain point, you know, it becomes much more difficult to recover from it. Yeah, so I think that was, I think that was why I didn't do anything with it because at that particular moment, it didn't seem like it was a big deal or a big problem. And I didn't realize like what the next sort of developments of that um, scenario were likely to be and how tricky they could become. So it was, yeah, it definitely wasn't a macho kind of um, thing. Um, I think it was just, a, again, a lack of, a real lack of understanding and uh, information and awareness. Again, so it's so interesting that you've talked about the overwhelming experience of learning from it almost, that because that, overwhelm is, is obviously a condition. But when you've, when you've had all of this information thrown at you and you're, there's, there's a real paradox here, it's like, oh, my goodness, I'm overwhelmed with that information. And maybe, maybe that's, that's a, a, you know, sort of almost forgetting about it is a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, indeed, yeah. yeah. I mean, coping was definitely the phase I was in at that point. Um, so, you know, I thought, I thought I was coping okay, but it turned out that I probably wasn't. Yeah, so in fact, when I actually got help was when my physical symptoms just required me to go to see my GP because I just had a constant upset tummy and really, really bad insomnia. Um, so I went to my GP and she was you know, fine treating the physical symptoms. And then she said, do you know what? Um, have you thought about seeing a psychiatrist? At which point the penny really dropped. Actually, <laughs> That's just what I needed. Um, so I'm, again, I'm, you, you've been in, you, mean, you were in then a very, pretty senior leadership position in, in, a, in, a, in a major corporation um, doing very complex work, which, which is, you know, three, three areas I'm interested in exploring. So the, the, the first element is that lead leadership position. So there's some wonderful research coming out of Australia from Mark Crosswell, who talks about senior leaders being unaware of their own suffering. And because they're unaware of their own suffering, that they're, they're unable then to be compassionate about the suffering of others in their organization because they don't, they don't perceive things. Does that talk to your experience at all? Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that research. I think it's very, very interesting. I'm sure for a lot of leaders, there's definitely something in that. <clears throat> I think uh, you know, going to my non-kind of macho <laughs> personality, uh, I was probably the flip side of that in a way, because actually I, I am very caring um, as a leader. And I always tried to you know, model the more of the servant leadership approach. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I would, be, I would be the one checking in on my people and making sure they were OK and worrying about whatever they were worried about um, and trying to, to make it better for them. Um, but I think where, you know, where I derailed a little bit was probably taking too much of that on board personally, um, just taking too much of that emotional burden uh, and not finding a way just to, you know, park that at some level, uh, which is a difficult thing to do when you care about people, you care about people, so it's kind of hard to park it sometimes. But, but yeah, so I think for me, it was, it was probably more a bit the opposite, actually. So, you know, it's probably the fact that I was so compassionate about my team members that actually got me in trouble <laughs> myself uh, rather than the other way around but c- certainly a degree of numbness I mean towards the end of my sort of burnout experience definitely I was feeling more inclined to just withdraw not turn up to social events or if I did not make too much of an effort to talk to many people um, I found some certain relationships with certain people just got increasingly difficult um, in ways that they never were historically like I was behaving out of pay- 
out of character and maybe some of the other people around me were also feeling their own you know pressure and stresses and also perhaps behaving a little out of character so it was a bit of a perfect storm that caused some you know relationship breakdowns as well I probe from a different angle because I, I think that's a really good answer. But I probe from a different angle of, of based on what you've already said. Was there an sort of an internalization or normalization that that you should be feeling sort of these levels of stress, and that was just part <laughs> of the job? Uh, and so that that if, if you talked about it or or, or, mm. or took it seriously, there was a bit of wimpiness involved. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, we had a very long term. Um, reorganization going on which was uh, I think we were kind of into the third year of it by the time I'd, I'd finally um, left the firm uh, and it was very stressful I mean like everybody was feeling that stress and strain and nobody knew where the end point was and nothing ever seemed to get much better or much clearer um, so yeah so we were, we were all living in, and working in that environment um, so yeah so you're right I mean like whinging about that is not really helpful um, because everybody else was feeling the same degree of pressure. Um, and I think there was, organizationally, there was a lot of focus on, well, you know, we all decided to pursue this project. We all signed up for it. We all just need to get our heads down and get on with delivering it. Um, and there really was not a whole lot of focus on the damage it was doing to people. Um, so, yes, in that sense, I think you're right. I think there was, it, it just became the culture that, we're all in this and we're not going to get out of it so we just got to suck it up and get on with it so i, I used wim quite deliberately because we, we talk about it in um psychological safety the, the idea of being a wimp and then that means weak impression management is i'm not going to speak up i'm not going to say what i'm feeling i'm not going to give new ideas i'm not going to going to address this and you've already talked about this as part of the the overall organisational experience. And I'm just wondering, the way, the way you said that you were compassionate to your workers or your employees and, and they did speak up to you, so you took on their, their burdens mm. as well. And then, but you've also got other, I'm sure you've got other leaders in that organisation who were the opposite to you and no one mm -hmm. would speak up. Yeah. I mean, does this mean there's no escape that whether they speak <laughs> up or not, someone, someone carries the burden? Yeah, well, yes, I think that's, uh, it's, that's a super important point because I think... Um, you know, I did occasionally mention to the global bosses that, you know, we're all in this together, we've got to support each other, this is the only way we're going to get through it, but that was in the first year, but come the second year, I kind of took a deep breath and thought, well, you know what, I think it's like, they don't care anymore, um, <laughs> there's not even any point raising it, so I think that is your wimp, that is your wimp point. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the same for a lot of middle managers. They feel like, okay, I can see my team's really suffering, suffering here. I can see there's no way we're going to do, you know, deliver these objectives or meet these targets or whatever. Um, but there's still no way that they're going to tell their bosses that they can't do it because that's career suicide. Um, even though it's not really anybody's fault, apart from arguably the bosses for not readjusting the objectives. You mentioned, uh, Brian, about um, uh, I think at one point that your um, managers around you uh, weren't caring so much anymore, or at least you felt that way. So what were the triggers? How, what, what's, what, what did you notice? 
Sorry, in terms of what didn't. Yeah, the, the, the business that you were working in, you, you said, okay, you, you get, sort of gave up after a while, right? Mm. Yep. yep. Um, so, what's, what were the triggers that, that, that led you to that point of deciding, okay, well, there's no point of. To reach that conclusion. Um, well, I mean, I think it was just after, you know, we had an extended period where uh, there was new, like whole new functions being created, but certainly new service centers, new services, new processes, new systems, new reporting lines, uh, some quite a few new colleagues actually. Um, but a lot of people still left double hatting and having to deliver this project plus their day job, plus probably another role because somebody else had left. Um, and, you know, we all like moaned about that for a while, but, you know, once it got to a point where like most people have been doing that for a significant amount of time, you kind of think, well, clearly nobody cares. It's just, that's just the way it's going to be. So there's no point um, making a big deal of it. So I'm, I, I'm, you've, you're, you've talked about this project as almost an unending kind of experience. <laughs> this is, and, and, and you never really saw the, the light at the end of the horizon because it was just... So, I mean, the, the common acronym thrown around uh, is nowadays is VUCA. So it's volatile, it's uncertain. It's, and, and I think the two that are really hitting me, it's, it's complex and it's ambiguous. It's, there's all of this complexity being thrown at you. Yeah. And you don't really know where to turn as to where the answers are because there's... 40 possible answers mm. I mean, and my own research talks very deeply to the emotional impact of being in those kind of conditions without end mm. do you think looking back at it would that would would that be a, a way of framing the overall experience for everyone yes absolutely yeah um i mean volatility may be not so relevant because we kind of knew the parameters we knew the scope we knew the objectives were actually clear um, although the endpoint depended on the quality of the service delivery and that turned out to be more difficult to achieve <laughs> so volatility so much not so much uncertainty uh, yes to some extent um but yeah the last the last two definitely the kind of ambiguity and complexity way 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 more than anybody had realized um it was big, very, very big, very ambitious project. Um, I think we knew it would be complex, but we probably massively underestimated how complex it would be and how the interdependencies would play out. Um, and uh, yeah, the ambiguity in terms of actually what is the endpoint. We, we started off thinking, yeah, we've sort of got a clear idea of where we're trying to get to, but then through the process of implementation, you find out that actually it is more complex. It's going to take longer. You have to have different solutions. Um, it's just not clear how much resource we need or what the time frame is actually going to be until we actually get a, a system that works for us. Uh, so yeah, so dealing with that complexity and ambiguity, I think were the two biggest parts of the VUCA challenge for us. Uh, and so well, again, this is the, I don't want to go too theoretical and I, and I want to give Oscar an, an opportunity to, to ask a few more questions himself. But um, the, one of the things I'm, I'm fascinated in this, this, this complex, uh, amb ambiguous kind of working environment is the drive. So at one level, we have a human drive to simplify and to clarify. Mm -hmm. But every single time we simplify or clarify something, new complexities and ambiguities, ambiguities appear in the uh, environment because the, you've solved one bit and now there are maybe seven things that you didn't realize were there that are now there. Were you experiencing that? Because that can, that can really overwhelm because you, every, mm. you, you've never feel you're taking a step forward. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, yes. I, I mean, I think, I think so. I think, uh, yeah, as I say, it's just like the, pro the project goals didn't change. Uh, some of the systems that were part of the plan kind of got massively delayed because of negotiations with suppliers or whatever other reasons. Um, so that didn't help. Uh, and then probably in terms of the, you know, the gap between the people providing the services and the actual people consuming the services, there was, there was quite a big gap between those two groups. Um, and I think that caused a lot of confusion on both, both sides actually. Um, because neither was quite sure what was happening or what was expected or how to resolve the issues and because there wasn't really a strong communication channel between the two sides of that equation, just resolving issues just seemed to take forever, um, probably multiple iterations of different types of solutions before we got to something that was acceptable. What I'd like to talk about as well, uh, Brian, uh, uh, is, okay, you mentioned um, the sort of uh, penny dropped when you went to GP, right? Mm -hmm. who, who kind of referred you. Mm -hmm. uh, was it really at that moment or was it afterwards? I don't know if that was the, the exact moment where you thought, well, <laughs> this makes all sense. Um, um, and mm. then the second part is, okay, what did you actually do after that mm -hmm. to, to basically recover? Yeah. Yeah, I think it, yeah, I think, you know, I, it was a very emotional moment, actually, when she asked me that question, do you want to see a psychiatrist? Um, because I guess I kind of knew in my gut somewhere that, yeah, that's the kind of help that I needed. Um, but for whether it was the wimp reasons or whatever other reasons, it took me uh, a bit too long to get to that point. Um, so, yeah, so I think that moment was a, was a real turning point. Um, so obviously my GP then referred me on to a, a psychiatrist um, and actually we did some, I mean, a, a small amount of medication to help with the insomnia, but that was relatively light. Um, and then we did cognitive behavioral therapy, so just the different types of thinking patterns, um, mainly for me around sort of negative thinking, um, mind reading, so sort of assuming you know what people think, um, particularly about yourself. <laughs> Um, maybe a little bit of catastrophizing, you know, because everything had just gone from bad to worse and you kind of get eventually into a way of thinking that that's just like everything will always just get worse. <laughs> yeah, so the CBT definitely helped. Um, but, you know, then after, actually then after I stopped working, uh, you know, so, yeah, I, that got me to a better place and the sleep patterns definitely improved and so on. So it definitely did help. Um, but I found after I stopped work, I still needed to go through a lot of just journaling, um, noting down things that you're grateful for, um, mindfulness and breathing techniques, yoga, that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I found that actually really helped get me a bit more grounded um, uh, and to be a bit more intentional about the way I was thinking, if you like, or the way I was reacting to whatever was in my head. The well-being part, was that something you had an interest in before this happened? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, with some of my colleagues, I would, you know, it was a very long hours, hardworking, it was quite a macho culture in that sense. And, you know, I would regularly be checking in with people and, you know, asking them if they were doing their yoga or getting out for a run or doing, you know, whatever, finding some time for themselves. 
Um, and I always had a very good kind of physical and mental health regime. So I always did a lot of sport and I did some yoga and got outside and got some sunshine at lunchtime and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, so I think I've, uh, yeah, I've always had a, you know, a, a healthy kind of regime and attitude and approach and interest in everything to do with well-being. Um, which I guess comes primarily from my sport because to do sport to high level um, you have to eat well you have to sleep well you have to look after yourself and make sure you keep your body kind of sh in, in good shape and ease out the knots in the muscles and do the yoga to stretch and make sure you don't get injured and all of that so so yeah so it's always it's always been there um, but, it's, but I think from my, from myself the core driver when I reflected on that is it's not specifically about well-being it's it is for me it's all about making the workplace experience better for people so whether that was as a leader being more of a servant leader being a bit more vulnerable being a bit more compassionate um you know that was that was part of that purpose to make the working experience better for the people reporting into me um and now with wellness it's that's kind of for me the next iteration of that same core driver um to try and address that you know the wellness pandemic that comes <laughs> after the COVID pandemic. So, uh, Richard, the one more question. I'm just interested as well, because you had a previous um, interest in, in well-being, so you were already practicing this. How did that change then afterwards, after you really then uh, realized, okay, I need, to, I need to take a step back? I, how, did, how did that practice actually change? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, yeah, so I think having some of those techniques and, and some enhanced self-awareness about, you know, is my mind really racing or is my heart really racing? Uh, you know, how am I actually feeling in the moment? And having some sort of breathing techniques or other meditation techniques to help you kind of control that. Uh, really, really helpful. Um, and I think also, you know, a lot of the stuff I've done is around just self-acceptance um, and self-love and compassion, forgiveness, those kind of themes. Um, so when you meditate consistently on those kind of themes, um, you know, for me, that does make a big difference because it puts stuff much more in perspective. Uh, so I think when you're in the, the wimpy kid kind of culture, you've always got to be pushing for the next big role, the next big project, the next big promotion, the next big bonus, the next big car, big house, younger partner, or whatever it is. Um, so I find my practice has just helped me to relativize all of that um, and accept that you, know, you are enough, as they say. Um, and that, that gives you a tremendously strong kind of sense of being centered. Um, and just gives you more stability and, and resilience, I think, emotionally um, to deal with whatever life throws at you. So it's, it's listening to this and it, it's fascinating. So thanks for sort of explaining what, what you've been doing. It seems like it's a sort of almost an embodied self approach. And perhaps you've added some some parts that were missing from a fully embodied approach after you've gone through the experience, because I'm hearing sort of active mind work, um, reflective mind work, um, relaxation work, physical work, nutrition work. So, you know, what what did what was missing that you added on? And, and, and is is this really the, the thing that everybody should be looking at being being a fully embodied self and working on mind and body and spirit and and, and these things simul yeah. simultaneously yeah i think i think that's um well, a couple, couple of observations but yes i think the, the the mindfulness in the meditation 
is the part that I've really added on. So before my yoga was mainly about just releasing tension and keeping my muscles sufficiently flexible not to get injured during my sport. Um, <clears throat> I went to the kind of typical gym class where you, you know, move around at 100 miles an hour and you get a good workout, um, but there's not a lot of spirituality typically in those kind of classes. Um, so yeah, so that, that definitely made a big difference. Um, and I think what, you know, what I've kind of learned through this experience is that even a very good mental health and physical fitness regime like I had, um, if you're in a constant, like long-term stressful environment, um, your body just reacts to that. You just end up flooded with the stress hormones all the time at your cortisol level. This goes to such a point where actually, even when you are like at home with your glass of wine, trying to relax, you just never come down to a sort of normal level of, of stress hormones. So you actually just never recover. <clears throat> so however much sport you do or however much yoga you do, it doesn't get you back to where you need to be. Um, you know, so at some point, if you, know, if you get to that point, you probably are going to have to take quite, quite a bit of a break. Um, and I, I certainly have found that the, you know, the CBT helped um, just get some of the thinking patterns straightened out and then the mindfulness <clears throat> really helped to contextualize, relativize everything. Um, and help me move forward from there. So, so yeah, I think that I think that part for me has been the biggest single thing that's really helped me get back on my feet. Um, so I'm interested again, but prior to so because you've added this 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 mindfulness component and and uh, um, and I guess a, a, a spiritual spirituality that's come with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you, I mean you were obviously you're feeling a more whole self again. So I want you to, to, again, if it's not too difficult for you to go back into that fragmented existence that you had prior um, and then look at, you know, the quality of the work that you were capable of doing when, when it was that fragmented. I mean, mm-hmm. was there impact? And, and if so, what was it? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, the sort of thing, things that I noticed apart from some relationship difficulties where, um, you know, things like the feeling of being overwhelmed and never getting to the bottom of the emails um, and therefore, you know, just not reading them in sufficient depth, not giving enough thought to the replies, um, firing out quick replies that maybe just had the wrong tone or maybe even had spelling mistakes or grammar mistakes, which I would never normally make. Um, Being late for meetings pretty much always, Um, not being prepared for the meetings, not if, if I was running the meeting, even not having got a clear agenda before I went into it. Um, so and kind of struggling to see the wood for the trees, if you like. So obviously in a leadership position like I had, you know, your job is to help people focus on what's most important. And that really hard, even myself, to figure out actually what is like the most important thing I need to be doing right now. I just didn't have enough clarity of thought um, or enough perspective um, to make those judgment calls as well as I would have been able to do previously. So if, if you forgive me in a little segue into my own, one of my own obsessions here, I mean, it, it, for me, that, that loss of strategic thinking, the ability of a, of a senior leader to think strategically and, and to, to, to help the organisation push forward, um, you know, as soon as, soon as, as, soon as there are uh, mental health challenges or cognitive challenges and that goes, that this is an existential risk to organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also the subjective challenge that it's how difficult that is to measure that you're you're talking about. So sort of how how might we make people take this kind of challenge more seriously? 
Yeah. Well, yeah, so I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the understanding. So, you know, making sure people can spot those sort of developments in their colleagues and understand how serious that potentially might be and have the skill to be able to have the right sort of conversation with those colleagues um, so that it comes across as being genuinely caring and genuinely supportive and genuinely wanting to help find a solution. Um, you know, whereas it can be like either non-existent or a bit superficial or just a little bit kind of threatening or may cause more anxiety, um, which just exacerbates the issue. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I think it, 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 there's a lot of sort of education and awareness and skill development that's required to, you know, enable a management team as a team to take ownership of that particular issue. And, you know, I think it, I think it has to be done at a team level. Um, it is a collective responsibility to support each other. And, you know, the general public suffers, at least 25% of people suffer from mental health issues and stressful businesses, it's probably a higher percentage. And there's no evidence whatsoever that senior people suffer less than more junior people. So <laughs> you can be pretty sure in any management team, um, something up to maybe 40% of that team will be having some sort of mental health struggle. You know, so when you, when you put it in those terms, you kind of wonder why are more leadership teams not spending so much more time on this? I wonder, because uh, you mentioned, right, you, you, work, you were working in a team. Do you recall or remember if people mentioned anything to you or, or did you just disregarded that? But sort of in hindsight, did they actually tell you, hey, maybe there is something going on, Brian? Because the, the question, the reason why I'm asking whether that, even if people identified, whether that would have had any impact on... Yeah. People. Well, I mean, I think... I think some people did identify it, um, but what actually happened was that they would then start going directly to my direct reports. Um, so without letting me know that that was what they were doing, um, you yeah, know, which just massively increased my anxiety and caused frankly a lot of humiliation. Um, so, you know, it was probably, I'm sure it was well intended, but it was not well managed. It was not, it was not communicated other than by facts on the ground, if you like. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, people, some people clearly did notice and they did take some steps, but they were massively counterproductive from my point of view. Yeah, deep irony. We, we, we've talked about this in other interviews, the deep irony of best intentions where, you know, they, they from, from their own perspective, and again, which is probably quite a narrow perspective because they're overwhelmed by complexity as well. They're doing the right thing, but, but the output is actually is, is possibly a worse uh, thing for everybody else. And maybe it's it's juggling and grappling with that, that that we need to be able to do so that people don't just go off and do what they think they need to do, but are much more open to have the discussions as to, well, what help do you need, Brian, in, in this yeah. circumstance? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so out of all of that, you know, that, that, that we're going to talk about what you're doing with your company now. So what, what out of all of this experience, because I think you're, you're one of the few people we know who've had the experience and, and then uh, 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 doing something with it in a really meaningful manner. Now, what are you what are you putting on the table to, to say to other businesses come to me learn this this is the output mm -hmm. yeah well um i think it's uh i mean i think you're right you've kind of put your finger on it in your summary that's really what i'm bringing is my 30 years of leadership 
experience because uh, there's a lot of people out there who know an awful lot more than I do about mindfulness or mental health or you know all of the discrete aspects um, but I think in terms of sort of understanding that VUCA context and how good intentions can fail to result in the intended good outcomes <laughs> that in a nutshell that's what I'm trying to bring to the table um, because I've seen that and I've lived it and I've probably been part of that problem for many of those 30 years um, just because that's the way companies operate and that's the way you're kind of the culture and the incentives tend to drive you towards um, so yeah so trying to talk to leadership um, with some insights about wellness some insights about why that challenge is such a big challenge and why it's so difficult to solve um, and as I said before, you know, bringing in some of those techniques, like, okay, let's just build a, a mindfulness culture. Let's give people at a very human individual level, their own mindfulness and awareness. And then let's build that up at a team level as well. So as a team, you can look out and support for each other and have a common language. So you can all share some of those insights. Um, and then taking that up to the executive level so the executives can understand what people are experiencing, what they're talking about and what it would take um, that they could do, what decisions they could they make differently um, that would actually support the overall wellness. Um, <clears throat> and this is not just, you know, soft um, bleeding heart kind of stuff, because as, as you know very well, both of you, you know, the presenteeism cost is enormous. It's probably at least 15% and maybe up to 25, 30% um, of people like me and my, and my bingo card just being there um, but not really doing a great job just coping, just getting through each day and doing all of those things that I just described in terms of being late for meetings and not focusing on the important emails and all of that. You know, that actually has a huge dollar cost. Um, and in terms of collaboration, innovation, customer experience, all of those things are impacted. Mm. Um, so trying to help management teams understand that and try and help them use whatever their metrics are to try and quantify what that opportunity cost is um, and then make sure they've got some kind of a dashboard so they can track these wellness related metrics which are ones who are most relevant for their business um, and then start to understand you know how their decision making affects the wellness metrics and how the wellness metrics are connected to the business mm. outcomes um, so that they can understand it in a much more connected and holistic and systemic way uh, so that for me, that's the holy grail. I think a lot of people are still, you know, at, at early stages of just like kind of a little bit of sticking plaster. So just give me some understanding, give me some awareness raising, give me a little bit of help with nudging my culture in the right direction. And we'll sort of get to building a more holistic and systemic approach over time, which I think a big complex organizations, that's understandable. I, don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> advocate some sort of overnight transformation. If it was that easy, people would have done it. I think it's, it's a long-term journey that does take time. You're almost an interpreter. Um, yeah. Cause again, I, I, I've, I've had some somewhat less wonderful experiences with some of the more new agey, uh, well, well, I mean, what we might call well washing or new agey kind of stuff coming out. And you just think, well, no executive is ever going to listen to this. They're going to, you know, I can't put you in front of somebody in, in those positions yep. because they're just going to look at you and think you're mad and I'm mad and I'm going to lose my clients but by doing this. So you're, you're that interpreter that we need, someone who can, who can help pick and choose suppliers and things yep. and, 
and, and help executives understand it. Yeah, exactly. The, the other thing, uh, Brian, because you mentioned this right at the start, I think, and then also here that in, at the end where you talk about so, sort of holistic approach. Um, you were talking about the coaching uh, that you do, but also you were actually throwing in design thinking, um, which seems a bit of an unusual um, practice, right? Maybe it's not, but so what, what I'm quite curious of, what, how, how broad is this what you offer and what does that include? Yeah, well, so the design thinking, um, you know, ultimately that is about, a, well, it started as a customer experience methodology. So what's, what's your customer's actually experience of inter- interacting with your business? Um, and so I think that that principle is totally applicable and relevant to wellness in the sense that this is an employee, primarily an employee experience that we need to understand in a different way. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you can see the staff turnover, you can see the absenteeism figures, but you don't actually know what's driving that. You don't know what is the experience those individuals are having that's driving them to be constantly absent. Um, maybe it's just, oh, that meeting is just unbearable. It just gives me so much stress every month that I just take a sick day <laughs> instead of turn up for the meeting. Or, you know, you don't know what it is at that very human level. Um, and as I mentioned, you have to provide support to people at that very human level because each of us is different and we all have our different backstories. Um, so I think design thinking is, is uh, really important. I think the other thing about design thinking that I like and that I think is relevant here is that you're always trying to get to what is the root cause here. Um, and in the wellness space, that is super difficult and complicated. Um, but in my case, the root cause is partly that environment that we were in and partly that big project, but it was also the fact that my wife was chronically ill and we just bought a flat and spent most of our life savings and we had the protests and all the rest of it in Hong Kong and then the COVID, you know, so there were a whole number of factors that were you know, affecting my mental health, uh, many of which were not within the control of the organization I was working for. Um, you know, so that, that's why I think <clears throat> trying to get to the root causes that actually the organization can affect. Um, so the pace of the program, the amount of resourcing, et cetera, this, this, the level that you set the expectations or objectives or goals at and so all of those kind of issues you can manage and all of those can cause stress. Uh, so that, that's why I think the design thinking is, um, is a very, potentially very powerful technique. Uh, and in terms of the way I'm operating, um, I'm very much into a collaborative partnership model. So I just find people that have got deep expertise in areas which I don't, but which I know are relevant to solving this issue. So I have a number of different business partners, including one of the leading design thinkers in Hong Kong, um, working with me on that basis. Um, so, so other than design thinking and, and collaborative practice, is, is there anything else that, that, that you would advise organizations do as they're grappling with this? Yeah, I think it, you know, it all starts from, I think a willingness of the leaders to be a little vulnerable and to share their own stories. Um, because if you're pushing constantly against that stigma and that fear of this is just gonna be career suicide if I speak up here, uh, having the leaders say, yeah, you know what? I really struggle with my sleep or I get really anxious or you know, whatever it might be. Um, that can just overnight make it okay for other people to have similar experiences and therefore make it okay to talk about it and they maybe not 
immediately with your HR person, or maybe not even with your boss, but at least with your peers. Um, and then if there's enough knowledge and understanding and people know actually how do you get somebody the help that they need, even if you're not the person to deliver that help, um, you know, all of that can make a huge impact um, you know, it's very, very quickly. So it's quite, it's quite telling that you said maybe not with the HR person. Uh, maybe with your peers. Um, well, because the research shows that HR are probably the last group of people that anyone's going to go to about this. That's what makes me so sad because, I mean, that, that it should be something that HR is, is tasked with stepping up and doing something about, mm. that, that rather than if yeah. someone comes and says to you, I'm struggling, it's not a, a reason to performance manage them out. <laughs> <laughs> that there's some other stuff you could do. I mean, it, it's... Is that something you're hopeful for? Some yeah. kind of imagination of HR? Look, I, I, I am a great fan of a lot of people in the HR world. It's a really important function, of course. Um, you know, but the reality is that HR teams tend to be really pretty busy. They've got a lot of stuff. They're hiring people. They're, as you say, performance evaluating. They're compensating them and all the rest of it. Uh, so there's, there's a lot that they have on their plate already. Um, and this whole, you know, wellness stuff, actually, it's not in your typical HR person's background or, or training, it's actually new for them as well as it is to most of us. Um, so in a way, I, I sympathize with the HR team because they, they don't necessarily have the skill set and the training that they need to be able to support people effectively. I mean, that can be provided, but it's yet another thing on their already long to-do list. Uh, and the other reason why I sympathize with the HR teams is because actually they are not in a position to identify the root causes and certainly not in a position to do anything about them. So if the root cause is that you just have too much double hatting, not enough resources, too many ambitious projects, you haven't recalibrated your KPIs um, to the new world, um, you know, HR can do very little about any of that. That really sits firmly at the C-suite and at the board level. Um, so yes, I think HR have an important role to play. Um, I think a lot of HR departments are, you know, very much aware of this issue and you know, very keen to help um, help people. Um, but unless the C-suite is providing them with the support and the resources that they need to do their job and willing also to take some potentially tough decisions um, to support everybody, then you know, there's only so much HR can do, and we're probably all just adding to their stress by putting this burden just on them. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not just HR that's unprepared, as you say. I mean, I remember I remember Kerry Cooper's stuff stuff on on well being and being taught in MBA programs, and, and I mean, it's ten years ago now the research, but it was zero percent of the top hundred business schools in the UK had anything to do with well being, and I and I've taught in universities, and I I've, I, I taught organisational behaviour. Um, and I've quite often had to slightly unteach some of the human resource management stuff because it doesn't go into the stresses and tensions of, of areas of work. So that, that it's a very narrow perspective. And I, I don't think I ever really taught well-being, but I certainly taught multiple perspectives and multiple interpretations of situations, which, which you know, that rather than just saying you're someone we need to get rid of, that, that there's something to look at. So I'm... You know, are, are, are you hopeful that what you're doing and, and this, this increased awareness is going to lead to a much wider understanding of, of the role well-being plays in overall organisational performance? Mm -hmm. And then if so, what do you think that is? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist, so that's probably why I've been able to recover and pick myself back up. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm always optimistic. Um, I mean, I think the issue is, you know, going back to what we were saying about the good intentions, like senior executives are genuinely concerned about this whole wellness issue. Um, I talked to a number of you know, friends who are you know, leading big companies and they're very worried about this stuff. Um, and they're getting increasingly frustrated that they're not finding sufficiently effective solutions and that people are still really struggling and they can see that. Um, so I think when you've got that um, burning platform, um, that's one of the key kind of prerequisites for any major change like this. You know, that's that actually, uh, it's a good place to start in the sense that it will result in something happening at some point. Obviously it's a bad situation for us all to be in, but it is what it is. Yeah, so I think there is enough of a pain point for, for a serious amount of time and thought and energy and resources to be put into addressing the issue. Um, so yeah, so yeah, yes, I am optimistic, um, but I do think it is a long-term journey. I mean, it's probably probably at least five years before the majority of companies really got their heads around this and really got sufficient, like the appropriate data points, the sufficient amount of awareness and understanding, the the skill sets that people need that we mentioned, um, and the ability to really bake this into the way they make decisions about how they run the company and how they respond to. You know, bumps in the road in terms of people's wellness. So if this um, happens, right, you said you have a time frame of five years, but I think it's pretty positive, uh, five years. And so that's 2026. So I imagine we sort of fast track to 2026. Well, I'll give you an extra year, 27. Um, how do you see companies performing then? If this were to happen where people realize, hey, this is not the way forward, uh, we need to change and it, it, they are going to change. What do you see happening? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think the performance impact is potentially very material. Uh, we talked about, about productivity impact of presenteeism, you know, all of the straight to the bottom lines. I think in terms of financial performance, there's, you know, it's 25 to 30% um, bottom line impact to go for. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, just the level of, you know, joy is a very important word, which I've been thinking about a lot recently. You don't find a lot of people who say, my work gives me real joy. I mean, my work now does give me real joy because I think it's important. It's aligned with my purpose. It's making a difference and people want to engage with me about it. Um, but for your average individual, there's no real joy. They might have some satisfaction, so they might be able to do what they do to a high level that they feel, yep, that's a job well done. Uh, so I think that's that's where I could see us getting to if we can if we can really crack this. Um, you know, the holy grail I think is that people actually feel like work is a joyful experience and actually makes you better, not makes you sick. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not going to give you the extra year because the, for, for a reason, Brian. And, um, <laughs> the World Economic Forum predicts that 2026 is the year that American, the US Medicare system will, will run out of money with the current levels of poor well-being. Oh, goes bust, yeah. Um, so 2026, five years seems the perfect, the perfect. Uh, and, and, you know, the, 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 the number Oscar and I throw around all the time around this is, is this, it's costing organizations in the OECD $9 trillion. Now, not just poor well-being, but 
uh, ineffective ways of, of organizing and leading and managing in relation to the way the world is moving in this digital transformational environment. So your $9 trillion question is, you know, your business, you're, you're correct, your business underpins a five-year change where, <laughs> where your interpretation model of, okay, you, get, you can interpret well-being into a level that, that senior leaders really understand and will do something about. What is the world that we then live in um, once that's all been implemented? Yeah, um, huge question. Um, I mean, the other reason for this five years is that's when I probably will definitively retire. So um, <laughs> I've got my same point. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that world will be just more compassionate, um, more human, more connected at that very personal level. Um, one, of the, one of the themes that I observe is that there's a lot of time and effort and investment going into various types of technology to support wellness and well-being. Um, but my own view is that unless that technology is at the same time facilitating connections with other people that actually result in real human-to-human -human, um, engagement, um, then the, te the technology will only partially help. It's not going to fully resolve the problem. So I think that, that would be the world for me. It would be that much more compassionate, much more human, much more individually connected world where you know, people are able to, <clears throat> to thrive. I think that's a simple way to, to describe it. Okay, Brian, thanks a lot. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Uh, Richard, thanks for co-hosting it as well. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for your questions. <laughs>